Kate and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. If you missed today's program, uh, some interesting conversation about spanking. Uh, Section 43 of the Criminal Code is the section that deals with so-called corporal punishment. We heard concerns from teachers about what getting rid of Section 43 might mean for them. We also heard from the Canadian Association of Retired People and how outraged their membership is because uh, we didn't have any pension reform uh, in the minds of our our finance ministers when they got together and met in Ontario this week. Uh, You can listen to the Kincaid and Breckenridge show uh, weekday mornings, 9.30 to noon on Newstalk 770 and Newstalk770.com. Hey, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. Uh, Rob and I, I'm Roger, that's Rob, we're uh, currently investigating whether or not we're allowed to use Donald Trump's special word on the radio. So far, don't believe we can, but uh, we've got our best people working on it. We're going to find out if we can use that particular word on the radio at some point in time. Well, it's one of those cases where uh, we wouldn't say it. We'd get in trouble for saying it. But when someone who's a newsmaker says something, and then the fact that that newsmaker said something becomes a story, it's almost kind of an excuse to play it. Because mm-hmm. then it becomes a question of, well, is that the kind of language a would-be president should using? Like if, if Justin Trudeau drops a, an F-bomb in, uh, in question period in response to something, uh, I, I think we would have... A journalistic purpose in, in playing that for people. Like, saying, look, is this what you expect to hear uh, from the prime minister during question period? And here's what he said, and we're going to play it for you unedited, embrace yourself, he says something bad. Same thing here. Now, Donald Trump doesn't drop an F-bomb. <laughs> kind of drops a weird S-bomb. It's not a, a phrase I've heard used, <laughs> really, in any context. But it comes across as rather crude. He's, he's talking about Hillary Clinton and uh, her loss to Barack Obama in 2008 in the primaries. He uses a very strange word to describe that loss, and a lot of people pouncing on that today. Well, yeah, and it's also like a great case of when your dad says something, he tries to be hip and he uses some slang, and uh, he doesn't know what the word means, and so it comes totally out of context. Because what, what, the word I believe he used implies something totally different happened besides just being defeated electorally. Well, it just sounds really gross. Yeah. It's a gross-sounding <laughs> word. I mean, it, it could mean something completely inane, but it just it sounds really gross. Okay, let's, so we'll touch on that later on. All right, grab the wheel here and veer it back onto the road. I veered it off in the first place well, anyway. Let's do so. Well, we talked yesterday about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and the recommendations that the new federal government has committed itself to implementing. There's 94 of them. And some of them are, are very specific, kind of uh, obscure even some of them, uh, you know, getting the Pope to, to apologize. But one of them deals with Section 43 of the Criminal Code, which is the so-called spanking law and the exemptions that exist for, for parents and for educators. Uh, there's a dark history of corporal punishment as part of that residential school's legacy. And the commission feels that one step forward is to, to get rid of that law. And the liberals have committed to doing so. Right. I mean, people are saying, OK, wait, you guys mean all 94? And they say, yep, all 94. What about that Section 43 one? We mean that, too. So they've committed to, to getting rid of this. So what does Section 43 do? Well, it allows parents to discipline their children. You know that uh, Bible proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child. Section 43 allows the rod to be used, but not just by parents, but also by teachers. Now, you might be surprised to hear that teachers actually support Section 43. They say it should stay in there. And you'd wonder why that is. Our, our teachers, do they take such great delight in uh, delivering corporal punishment to misbehaving students? I would say no, not at all. And in fact, Heather Smith, the president of the Canadian Teachers Federation, is going to join us in just a second. But Section 43 does protect teachers in certain instances. And that's very, very important. Let's bring her into the conversation right now. Heather Smith joins us. She is the uh, president, Canadian Teachers Federation. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. 
Thank you for inviting me. Well, we understand you're on, on a Christmas break, a holiday right now, so it's, it's very delightful that you've uh, taken some time out to talk to us, and we appreciate that. Oh, no problem at all. So why don't you explain to us, then, what the CTF's position and teacher's position on Section 43 is? Well, I, I first wanted to, uh, to state that calling it the so-called spanking law um, has been the, the acronym or the use of, of this Section 43, and that in no way um, teachers condone corporal punishment. In, in fact, um, I would venture to say that most, if not all, uh, associations and, and federations and union teacher unions across the country and actually around the world and CTF itself has policy that um, clearly states that corporal punishment is not to be used in schools. So right. for teachers, um, it, it, it is a very different reality. And the uh, Supreme Court decision in 2004 certainly narrowed um, the scope of Section 43 with regards to teachers. So corporal punishment is not part of that at all for teachers. Right, which is important to note. So what, what does it mean then for teachers? Why is it important that we have it? Well, what it means is, is there are situations in a school that happen on a regular day. I'm, um, um, I've been teaching 33 years, and I was in a school until June of this year in New Brunswick, which is uh, where I'm home visiting right now. Um, and so I have been in schools for those 33 years as a teacher in the classroom um, and as an administrator. So I have. There are many situations where teachers need to use physical interaction with students um, that is not um, it, it's not an assault the child is not committing an assault against the teacher or against another student but it's actually for their protection and and I can give you some some very clear examples please do um, I, I've, I taught primary school most of my career, um, a lot of it in, in kindergarten with, with five-year-olds. And we have many students who what we would call runners. Um, so when they get upset, when they're, what they do will we'll run away. And so if I'm on duty on the playground and I see a situation evolving, I would often go and, and get that student and get them into a safer part of the playground if I see that there is they could, there could be a trigger that they're going to run. I don't want to have a student running into traffic. I don't want to have a student running um, off school grounds where they don't have the, um, the protection of adults there. So often it's, it's for the, in the best interest of that student, even though at the time they're not, they're not um, doing what others may see as, as something. Uh, but, I, but I may have to physically, uh, you know, put my arm around that child, move them uh, to another spot where they're going to be safe. It seems as though then your support of Section 43 is almost a general comment on society that says, because you might sue us for trying to protect your kid, we've got to keep this protection in there. That's right. And, and actually, if, if Section 43 is going, you know, is going to be repealed, as the Liberal government has said they're going to do, then um, we feel they need to have some conversation with teachers because something needs to be in its place um, for that protection because we in no way condone corporal punishment, but there are, you know, many situations, and I, I just gave you one, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, there, there could be a child in a classroom who is um, at the point of, of, um, of uh, losing control, and often, if, if that happens and it's in front of their peers, um, once they have calmed down, they feel really badly. And so it's not good for their, for their social, social and emotional health for that to happen. If we can remove them from the situation, from the classroom, 
then if the explosion happens, then it's it's not in front of peers, and so that way that the the um, you know it's it's for the protection of their emotional health. But sometimes you need to have that physical um, intervention for it with the with the student to to remove them from that classroom. Right. Well, what about those who say, "Look, if we get rid of Section 43, that no case is going to be brought against the teacher. The police are never going to be called in to investigate that scenario you described. A teacher would never be prosecuted for that scenario you described." Is is that reassurance enough? Well, I don't think it is um, because teachers have been have been charged with incidences that could be what what I just described. Um, and Section 43 has been a protection um, there because it's, it's, you know, it's, the scope is very narrow. Um, teachers, you know, they need to maintain a self, uh, um, uh, a safe and caring learning environment, but the threshold of accountability is high for teachers in, in even under Section 43 because any physical intervention has to be by way of correction or education. It has to be justified and it has to be reasonable. So it does not protect teachers in in all situations. It does not give them license to to hit kids, which is what some, you know, when, when we're, when teachers are tied into this whole section 43 discussion, that's often what is said. And for teachers, that is in no way, um, you know, representative. It, they, they have to be, it, the scope is very narrow. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that ties in quite well to what Rob said earlier. I mean, Heather, you basically just read us Section 43 of the Criminal Code, and what Rob said earlier was that Section 43 does not in any way protect or condone what went on at residential schools. I'll read it right now for the benefit of the audience. Every school teacher, parent, or person standing in the place of a parent is justified in using force by way of correction toward a pupil or child, as the case may be, who is under his care, if the force does not exceed what is reasonable under the circumstances. So it would not allow anybody, a parent or a teacher, to strike a child, but the, the, the situations that you've described to us where, uh, you could certainly find some sort of criminal code offense in, I guess, uh, unlawfully detaining a kid in the playground so yeah. he doesn't run off into traffic. Section 43 protects against that. That's right. And, and, you know, really having Section 43 there does not condone what happened in residential schools by any means. No. So then what's, what, what, is there a, a middle ground here then? Is there a way to repeal Section 43 and then replace it with something else that, that would give teachers the same protection and still satisfy the commitment to follow every recommendation of the TRC? Well, that's our hope, and we, and we hope to have those discussions in the weeks and months to come. But don't we have the precedent of that Supreme Court ruling that even if we get rid of Section 43, the Supreme Court is pretty clear on what's ex- an acceptable use of, of force? But the Supreme Court ruling is on Section 43. So if Section 43 is gone, then there is no more that that ruling, I think. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a teacher. Um, But I don't think that that ruling then will apply because this section is no longer there. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's an important conversation. It's an important part, piece of this conversation, if indeed we're, we're going to proceed on this and what it's uh-huh. going to mean for teachers. Uh, I guess, Heather, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll watch closely and see how this unfolds in, in the coming months. Yeah. And, you know, really, every, every province in Alberta, most certainly uh, the Alberta Teachers Association, has a code of professional conduct. And teachers hold themselves to, to a high standard of accountability within that code as well. Um, so it's even stricter than what Section 43 might be. So teachers, you know, they, they, there may not be criminal charges, but they could be held to their own code of professional conduct.
Excellent stuff. Heather, thanks so much for your time today. It's much appreciated. No problem. All right, take care. Have a good holiday. You too. Merry Christmas. That's uh, Heather Smith, president of the Canadian Ta- uh, Teachers Federation. All right, well, Section 43 uh, applies to teachers, also applies to parents. So this is one part of that conversation where teachers are worried that taking this away could expose them to potential charges if they need to put their hands on a child, not to strike that child, but to remove the child from a dangerous situation, you know, to step in and break up a fight even, you know, to, to pull a kid back if, if he's getting aggressive. And if that child says, look, you put your hands on me, that's assault, what protection is there for teachers exactly and and you know if you look at the uh, alberta teachers uh, uh association website for other situations like the ones heather described rob it's exactly what you just said uh such situations include the need to protect students or teachers when a fight occurs at school including restraining students if necessary escorting an uncooperative student to the principal's office removing a disruptive student who refuses to leave the classroom or the school itself placing a young student on a bus in a situation where that student has been on a field trip and refuses to return to the bus restraining a cognitively impaired student and intervening in a potentially disruptive situation to prevent escalation into something more dangerous. So there are times when teachers uh, uh, maybe get into the gray area in trying to control the behaviors of students for their own benefit and protection. Section 43, that's, it protects teachers in these situations, and that's why the CTF sticks, for, sticks up for it. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. And, I mean, we can talk about these completely reasonable scenarios where a teacher would have to to put his or her hands on on a child and the same thing would apply to parents i mean i I think people tend to take a dim view of spanking these days but you know in extreme circumstances when a kid's putting himself in danger or someone else in danger we see a parent swat a kid on the bum for that kind of thing again it's we don't think the police are going to get involved it would seem ridiculous to get the police involved but i guess and the point's been made well if it's ridiculous to get the police involved, then why are we getting rid of Section 43? Why are we even creating that possibility? If we're okay with these things, if we view them as not criminal, then shouldn't we make sure that that's, that's written somewhere? What's, what's the harm in, in what we have now with Section 43? All right, we'll take a pause right here. We'll get to your phone calls afterwards. And we are going to transition this conversation, as we said before, from teachers to parents. Uh, but we want to know what you think about the discussion so far. Jim has called in. We'll get to his call next. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. It's Dolly Parton. Dolly. Uh, Dolly. You know Dolly Parton? See, she sells out shows like everywhere. When she performed anyway. Well, doesn't like, she still have her own like Dollywood? Dollywood, yeah. In, in, I think it's in Branson, Missouri, I think. Be. I couldn't get my wife to go there on our big road trip through the through the. No, really. Is that the Midwest? I mean Branson, or specifically to Dollywood. Branson. Yeah. It's like we we'll go to Branson. It'll be fun. All right, why do I want to go there? Like, all right, let's just go to these other places. Well, you go there, and you probably wouldn't want to go back, but I think it would be worth seeing once. Isn't everything worth seeing once? Probably. I think so. All right. Well, uh, we digress a little bit here. Nine seven four eight two five five. We're talking about section forty three, which is. Known as the spanking law, you heard Heather Smith from the Teachers Federation say we don't like calling it that because we're, we're talking about scenarios that have nothing to do with spanking, nothing to do with force as discipline, but rather force for a child's own safety or the safety of other children. And I guess the same would apply to parents. You know, if you, you need to step in, if your kid's about to walk into traffic, you need to grab that child, yank him to safety. And, and then maybe at that point, if it's for the kid's own benefit, uh, you know, in, in, in a parent's mind, he might want to have that kid associate that with, you know, getting a, a smack on the butt, right? But 
I don't know that that's criminal. I think we're in a position in society where we view spanking, where we view physical force as discipline, as, as outdated, as potentially harmful, as sending the wrong message to kids. So I think parents on their own, I mean, just views on parenting are evolving to the point where, you know, spanking is quickly becoming a, a thing of the past. I, I don't know that the law needs to step in and address that. And I don't know what no, no. that scenario has to do with the residential schools. I mean, someone texts. And, you know, using some some kind of harsh language, I suppose, in one sense. But the point taken here, residential schools were Canada's Holocaust, comparing it to spanking as an insult to the victims. Now, I wouldn't compare it to the Holocaust, but obviously it's a very dark chapter in Canada's history, maybe our darkest. Maybe that's the parallel, I guess. But comparing it to spanking is an insult to the victims. I, I think that's a valid point. So why why are we yeah. merging these conversations? No, exactly, it, and it's interesting to me that it came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the first place. Um, but I mean, I guess that that if you were just to take the high level approach, that you cannot have anything written into law that could potentially allow the abuse of of students in school situations. Then this is the thing you'd look at in the criminal code to get rid of. You know, uh, we promised Jim that we would get to him, so let's do that right now. Hi, Jim. Thanks for the call. Yeah. So just two quick things. First off. Spanking, for the most part, is to get the child's attention. It's to get them on track so that you can bring them into a corrective behavior. It, it, it's not there to inflict a lot of pain. It's to get their attention. I think what this changes is that they have to, first off, make sure that the teachers are properly trained and that they to, to handle the situations. And I think, for like with the police departments, Hollywood, media, everybody's put a big distrust into authority. And I think we should have some sort of camera system that when there's a situation in the classroom, the teacher presses a button, the incident is filmed, and the, and, 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 and the action is taken. And that way, because your parents are out of control. Yeah, Just look at hockey parents. There's okay, a yeah. lot of parents who are out of control that where little Johnny and little Susie can do no wrong. And those are the ones that are creating the issue. Yeah, well, okay, I don't, okay, I don't disagree with that statement, but I, what you want, so if we have a camera in the classroom and then something gets out of hand and then you videotape it and then action is taken, what's the action you're talking about? Well, then, so that, so that the, if the child is, is removed, you can see how much, for, everything will tone down. Oh, I see what you're Watch. saying. Everything will, the, the teacher knows that it's being filmed and everything will be under control and that it will, will remove the emotion and it will remove the, the intensity and, the adrenaline rush that's happening in the situation. Well, but we're talking about situations that occur in the playground. I, I don't know that we can have eyes everywhere in, in a school. Well, then in the playground, you'd have a you'd have a, an individual that is trained in that area, so that their that their 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 authority and and their correct action that they're taking is taken out of question. Well, okay, but even I right I now, I mean, I you, you have parent volunteers sometimes that, that go and just act as recess supervisors, and all of a sudden a fight breaks up between two kids. Uh, what what? Difference doesn't make if it's training or not. If someone has to step in and pull a kid off another kid, it doesn't require training. I mean, I could do that. You could do that. Roger could do that. But that, but that, but little Johnny or little Susie's parents are the ones that are bringing question on the person who who touched that child. And that's where the issue. Is. Okay. Well, even if there's video of that, then it's it, it still shows the adult putting his hands on the child. But it removes any question of the hearsay. I don't. Th- I don't think that solves the problem, though. I kind of. I don't really understand the premise, to be honest with you, Jim. You're talking about how if you could show the parents, no, look, your kid was really misbehaving. The teacher is right. That that would somehow correct the situation. Yeah. Well, did did on the school buses. Uh, I think that on oh when when students were abusing uh, school bus drivers, you mean it corrected yeah, and the they situation. Yeah, but I. Th- 
Well, yeah, it wasn't but, a case of the, the school bus driver using force yeah. against the kids. You're just talking about a situation where kids were misbehaving and school bus drivers proved it, as opposed to a case where a school bus driver got up and slapped a kid to straighten him out and then said, you know, look, I taped your kid and it's okay for me to slap them now. No, I don't think that would be the, the – I think the situation would be the person would realize that they are being videotaped and that uh, that they wouldn't they, – there comes a point in time where you'll, you, you maybe might not even take – the, the person who's involved in the incident might be at such an emotional and, and, and adrenaline level that you may need to bring a third party in. You may need to bring the principal in. Let's go back to the let's go back to the, the thesis here, though, right? Because I I personally believe that we're getting to a place of such normalcy with video cameras that they don't augment behavior. Bank robberies still happen, despite the fact that we've had cameras in banks for many many years now. But the problem here is we're talking about a situation where uh, teachers uh, need some sort of protection should they ever have to physically intervene on a child. Are you are, are you bringing forward that uh, teachers shouldn't have to do this? It should be parents who are doing it in the first place. Well, no. What I'm saying is that when when there's when, the, the the reason that, the, the, that I believe the reason that this that there's the change is people are not trusting the teachers to handle the situation. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Thanks for the call, Jim. You know, and I think well, that's that, not why this is changing. No, this is changing because of a recommendation from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That that has nothing to do with any of these other issues. I mean, the fact still remains. Just because an exemption is carved out for a teacher to intervene and to pull a kid off another child, if that child claims, no, that teacher punched me. Well, Section 43 doesn't provide protection to the teacher at that point, as the Supreme Court made clear about a decade ago. So I guess if, if it goes back to Jim's point that we need to have uh, videos, uh, video cameras in every school covering every part of the school in the schoolyard to prove what actually happened if that allegation comes forward, well, that, that's a separate conversation from Section 43. And I guess we, we could and should be doing that right now, but that seems like an overreaction. I mean, what, what the Teachers Federation is giving us is a hypothetical example of where there might be an issue. They're not coming forward and saying, here's 100 cases from this year where teachers were falsely accused of assault. I don't know that that's, that's a big enough problem to justify Jim's response. Hi, Peter. Uh, we've only got about a minute for you. Go ahead. Okay, I'll be, I'll be quick. I, I, I just wanted to refer to the texture on the, uh, the Holocaust. Uh, that actually referred to people who perished, who lost their lives. Not, I wouldn't not, compare it either. I, I think if you're trying to make the case that the Holocaust was the worst thing that ever happened in, in modern-day Germany, uh, and therefore the parallel is that this is the worst thing that's ever happened in Canada, in modern-day Canada. A broader picture of what happened in Germany is uh, six million. That's that's a number we get that's that. talked about yeah. often. Uh, but fifty million is the number of people who perished worldwide. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, Chinese, uh, Ukrainian. We're talking about all over the globe in hostilities over over fifteen years. And right. that, I, that was a time period when when the residential schools were were functioning. Are, are we well. are we losing the plot though? Because for for certain, the loss of life is 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 a stark hallmark of the Holocaust. But I think that for uh, uh, cultures and populations that were affected by residential schools, uh, in a government mandate to basically eradicate uh, their culture, if not their species, then I think that no, I, 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 that that's not to lighten that, but to get everything into perspective. Uh, it's a good thought to think. Hey, on yeah. the lighter side, you know what? Uh, you know, Peter, we just don't have time. Can you hold on a second? We'll put you on hold, and we'll, we'll get to the news to 1030, and we'll, we'll uh, see if we can continue this afterwards.
You betcha. Okay, hold the line. Thanks, Peter. I think people use the Holocaust uh, to as a way to to call attention to it and say, look, I mean, as a matter of perspective, I don't think anybody is saying, on balance, this is the same as. I don't hear it that way. I think it's a tough comparison to draw, but I don't hear it that way. I don't way. think they mean that. I think we should avoid making that comparison because I, I think the Holocaust is, is something unique, something that uh, obviously rises far above anything in, in, in the Canadian context. But... Yeah, you want to talk about dark chapters in Canadian history. I think we can have that conversation. We're going to pause with the 1030 News. Continue more time for your calls here. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. All right, welcome back. Uh, a couple of things, a, a few show bulletins, if you don't mind. We'll just get these out of the way. First of all, Rob and I, we have our best people working on it. Still not certain yet if we can use the word Donald Trump used in describing Hillary Clinton's defeat. Well, do uh, we have the clip of them? Because then, you know, that way we can just wash our hands of it. Hey, we didn't say it. We just... It's Donald too, Trump said it. It's too late now. I've already said that he said something that we don't know if we can say, so now if we play it, then I'll be. Plus, our boss is away this week. That's true. We could play it. So we can't ask him, but it's less likely we're going to get caught <laughs> if we do. There was a... I can't even say it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll tweet this clip that's that, that's unintentionally vulgar. A second bulletin. We have a very important phone call scheduled for later on in the program. Uh, shortly after uh, the news to noon, we're going to telephone the North Pole. We're going to get a, just carve out a couple of minutes with the man himself just to confirm and prove to you that Santa Claus will indeed be here on uh, December the 24th. That's Christmas Eve. Which is like two days from now. Yeah. Isn't that insane? He's going to take calls from all the kids. He loves it. This is great. So spread the word. Spread the word far and wide. Heck, you could be in uh, Malaysia, and you could call in and talk to Santa. You could. Theoretically. Do you know, right? any, do you know anyone in Malaysia? I don't. And I don't know. Do they, would they even know who Santa is? Oh, yeah. Koala, oh, God, he goes yeah. all around the he world. He goes everywhere. Yeah. He hits them all. And uh, last bulletin before we get to, uh, to our next topic here. Um, the World Junior Hockey Tournament uh, is on live on News Talk 770. Now, this time around, it's in, it's in Santa's uh, summer home of Finland. Yes. And uh, that means that it preempts the Kincaid and Breckenridge show. I know. I know. Boo-hoo. But still, uh, you get to listen to all it's the games yeah, in this time slot. So it starts on Boxing Day with Canada versus, uh, uh, what is that, USA? USA? I don't know. I tell you what, uh, Canada, I think they're really going to beshloing the competition this year. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not quite what Donald Trump said. <laughs> But it's almost to the line. We're just making up words now. We get a spelling to talk about a bushloing, <laughs> awful, awful defeat. It would be a B S C H. It's a B S C H. Yeah, bushloing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, get on to more serious matters here uh, because our finance ministers uh, were meeting. Uh, we, we heard from Joe Cici earlier this morning, and the one thing that they all decided to do was nothing when it comes to pension reform. And this has uh, drawn the ire of certain groups, and it is a huge sigh of relief to other groups. We're going to explore this a little bit in uh, in this half hour. And we'll start this exploration with uh, Susan Eng. She is the Executive Vice President of the Canadian Association of Retired People, uh, where they just did a survey of their membership and found out that retired people are outraged uh, that there has been no movement on pension reform. Is that so, Ms. Eng? Well, yes. I mean, uh, for for the main problem that we've been talking about this for, what, seven years at least, and it isn't as if we haven't got all the arguments on the table. You know, two elections have been fought and won on it. And so what more is there to discuss? Well, what needs Actually, to be done then? Where, where do the finance ministers, uh, or certainly the federal finance minister, where do they need to go now on regarding CPP? What needs to change? 
Well, you know, first of all, it's a, it's a very simple proposition, which is that people in Canada have trouble saving on their own. It is easier and less expensive if you join a large plan. If you had the choice, you would want to join, say, the teacher's plan or OMERS and so on, but you can't. And so every other Canadian that doesn't have a workplace pension plan needs a place where they can invest safely at a modest cost for what they get, which is a lifetime pension that's uh, inflation protected when they retire. That's what we're after. The only way you can get that is if you join the large plan. You can try to do this on your own, and some people are financial geniuses, but most of us are not. So that was the only option on the table. The only way that happens in Canada is if the finance ministers get together and change the legislation. And they declined to do so. And we've gone through this dance, oh, what, half a dozen, a dozen times now in the last five or seven years. Uh, And each time, one of them, you know, jumps up and says, oh, I haven't heard all the arguments yet. I want to talk about this again. Okay, well, which is effectively what they said. They're not going to make a decision on it right now. Uh, but do you feel that that means that they slammed the door, or, you, or do you just feel that it's it's a holding pattern and, uh, and we're never going to have It's a holding pattern, but here it is. Every day, people are moving into that age range, and indeed it's the boomers moving into that age range where this matters a lot. And more than that, it's almost too late for most of them because you need to be saving for your entire career to actually get a pension at the other end. And so really for many of the older people, and including our members, it's for their children and grandchildren. They know this is a good idea. They've had to try to make ends meet, uh, you know, in retirement. And half of our membership actually has uh, a workplace pension. So they know how tough it is to get by without that kind of pension support. Nowadays, people hardly ever have a workplace pension. Indeed, two-thirds of the working population today does not have a workplace pension. So we're relying on something like the CPP uh, or Financial Genius, as I mentioned before. And uh, if we don't have this at hand and we wait again, uh, when is it going to happen? First, And uh, furthermore, even if they had decided on Monday to go ahead and sign the papers, the law requires there to be a three-year notice period anyway, right? You can't even get started with a change right away, not like the taxes that they can impose immediately, uh, but rather you have to wait three years. And so there's plenty of time for people to get used to it, for the economy to improve, all of these things that they're worried about. Well, what's wrong with CPP as it stands now? Not enough. It's very good as it stands. It uh, it made money when everybody else was losing. It is uh, over $200 billion strong at this point, which makes it more likely that it will survive the, you know, the uh, tumult and so on. And uh, it has been secure and it's uh, rated secure for the next 75 years. However, the maximum you can get from it now after a career of working and contributing uh, is about $12,000 which means it's not enough. 
What what's the improvement then to to uh, unlock more CPP for your members uh, and for retired Canadians, or to well, develop to a, a parallel more stream? To get more. You right. have to contribute more to get more. They're getting the maximum that they paid in for as it is. It's uh, it's like an insurance plan. You make uh, premiums, and and remember, it's not just a return of your money. The estimate is that about twenty percent of the pension, the lifetime pension that you get after the fact, is comes out of a return of the money you put in. Or over your working career. The other 80% is owed to the uh, investment returns that the uh, CPP has garnered during that time, and that's what you're getting in, in the pension. Right. But I don't understand what your point is. I mean, when, when we talk about uh, you know the return on investment, I think that, that that's a, a concept that runs parallel to people's own individual retirement savings plans or even some of these PRPPs that we're hearing more about. Uh, so are you saying then that the CPP should simply just pay out more money to people on the No, a, on no, a no, month? no. In, in order for people to get a better pension at this point, from this point onwards, they're going to have to make, uh, the future generations actually will have to make more contributions than okay. they are now. Otherwise, they're stuck with the maximum level that they are eligible for now. Well, that's the problem that small businesses say with, with this approach, is that that's an increased payroll tax on them. Well, it's payroll tax if you think of it in terms of what am I paying? today that I don't get back in my pocket right away. And so in that respect, yes. However, over the longer term, and this is what pensions are for, the longer term, it benefits the economy, their employees, and themselves over the longer term because all of the studies have indicated that the stability of retirement incomes in, increases the, the economic outlook. The money that pensioners spend in the economy is, is uh, fruitful. And indeed, when the money is uh, taken out of your paycheck, yes, and contributed to the CPP, it doesn't disappear. It gets reinvested in the economy. Now, where does that leave the employer? Well, of course, they do have to pay more per employee, but how much more? How much are we actually talking about? When we look at the ORPP, which is the only thing actually on the table at the moment, the approximate amount for a $45,000 employee is about $130 a month shared equally by the employer and employee. That's the maximum amount. So why are we talking about that kind of amount making the difference between hiring the employee or not? Well, we got small business groups uh, like the Confe- Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and they say we've got data that suggests uh, this would mean uh, a lot of job loss, uh, maybe over 100,000 the jobs lost. themselves because there's no other good economist that says anything of the sort. Indeed, when the CPP was increased in the late uh, 90s, because they, when they first pre- introduced it, they underpriced it, and then they increased the premiums in order to actually make it stable and, and put it into the stable situation it is at now, people got no additional benefits for those additional premiums, and they raised a hue and cry at the time saying the same thing. It would be a job killer. In fact, uh, employment increase during that period of time. It all depends on economic environment, whether or not you have more employment. Um, The kind of narrow-minded, mean-spiritedness that they keep bringing forward and some politicians keep buying just has never had any evidence. But Susan, did employment increase because of the increases in the CPP contribution? Had nothing to do with it. That's just the point. They're, They're making the point that employers will necessarily not hire an employee that they need on a account of that estimate of $130 a month.
Okay, but but if we if we dial this back, though, we understand that an employee will not hire somebody they need if it doesn't make economic sense. Yeah, but one hundred thirty dollars a month is that the difference? Well, I don't know. Neither I mean, of us. Well, hang on, Susan. You neither neither you that's or going to make the difference between hiring somebody <laughs> or not. Well, with respect to that question, we're in the four hundred three area code where there's so, some stronger headwinds economically speaking than there are in the four hundred six where well, we're reaching. Well, then you're not in. hiring somebody at those rates. Well, then why put you're more? Well, then why put in hiring somebody at a lower uh, level of salary? But that's precisely the question, though, Susan. Why increase the the uh, the burden of hiring somebody by $70 a month or whatever it is per employee, if, if that is a hindrance to the expansion of your business. Well, and keep in mind know, that expansion you of your business doesn't always mean... Is, what, you hang on a second. A little bit more no, hang on, hang on a second. That employee. There's a great, great deal more stability all around. And soon enough, they become pensioners and they'll be spending in your store. Well, no, no, that's, that's a fallacy too. I've got to take exception to two things here. First of all, hi- expanding your business doesn't just mean hiring one more employee. There are small businesses that want to expand by opening another franchise, and that requires hiring 10 more employees. Now we're up to $700 a month, or 50 more employees. Now we're up to $3,500 a month, and that's you know, that's a significant burden. Now, the second well. thing is, and I, I know you know this because you are, are the executive vice president of the Canadian Association of Retired People, is that the money that is paid out in pensions isn't trapped in the economy. It often flees the economy. How many well, of your no, members, Snowbird, how many of your members fact, go to Florida? There was actually, um, there was actually a, a really thorough study done by the Boston Consulting Group specifically on behalf of those pension plans that do very well, uh, you know, teachers and owners and the like, and so obviously they were singing their own praises, but uh, you can't deny the fact that the numbers that they came up with were true. So, for example, they did say that um, the defined benefits plans contribute about 14 to $16 billion annually to government coffers because of income sales and property taxes that that the defined benefit uh pensioners are spending. Uh, that That is one important issue. Another important issue is that the percentage of those pensioners who have to take uh, income support through the guaranteed income supplement are much lower than in the general population. The money that is actually spent in small towns, for example, where there are a lot of people with DB defined benefit pensions, they actually uh, are uh, helping the economy of those small towns. So it isn't as if this money flees. Where is it going to go? It's going to come into the pockets of pensioners who will turn around and spend them. I mean, the point about a lot of uh, retired people spending significant amount of time outside of Canada, you wouldn't deny that. Well, some do, but, you know, who does that? It's a, it's a percentage, of course. But, you know, they they purchase airline tickets and all the rest, and they spend time away. But that's not everybody. If you look around you today and ask who among you who know that you know who are retirees, whether they are offshore or not for this holiday, you'll find that the answer is not very many. And in fact, we just did a poll um, of our members as to how they plan to spend the holidays, and a good portion of them are just staying right here. So it isn't as if this money is fleeing. Okay. <laughs> but, I, but I mean... 
No, it is as though this money is fleeing. There's a significant number of Canadians who take their winters in winter destinations. They might come home for the holidays, but that doesn't mean that they're not spending maybe November, January, February, and April in Palm Springs or Palm Beach. And that's yeah, a significant really, amount of money. We look at the, this larger picture of people's retirement security. The, the no, no, that's not. We're not debating retirement security right now. We're talking country. about the benefit to small businesses to increasing the pension, the the, the, the payroll tax. You're, you're you're suggesting that when small businesses spend more on their employees to to proffer their retirements, that that money comes back to them in some uh, in in some. Uh, wonderfully uh, invested uh, form that, that it gets well, spent back you know, in the community. Well, it's not one-to-one, right? No, it's not. Uh, nothing it's is less like than that. one-to-one. You, it, it's part of the general stability of the economy, the uh, productivity and the, the comfort and uh, sense of security that employees have looking into the future. Uh, the level playing field, in fact, that all your competitors are having to pay the same amount in, on behalf of their employees, which is why it's important that it be universal. The dollar amounts are really proportionately very small compared to the other costs you have to consider when you start or increase your business. So really to harp on this one thing because it, it sounds like a good thing to worry about, it seems to be very uh, narrowly focused and really doesn't see the larger picture. And don't forget, a lot of these small business owners themselves don't have a pension plan. They and their families could use the increased support. So it's not as if this is a one-way payment to their employees. One of the other things that that you should also know is that quite often, and this happens in larger companies too where they do have a workplace pension, the amount that is contributed to the pension plan is much more valuable dollar for dollar than the salary. Although, of course, if you want to spend that on the latest Star Wars toy, um, (laughs) that might not seem that way. But dollar for dollar, the value of that compensation in the form of a pension contribution is much greater than salaries. And therefore, many employers do offset one over the other, um, that they don't have to give as much of a dollar increase in salaries if they make pension contributions. Well, is is it time to look at possible alternatives to CPP, like uh, the the pooled registered pension plans we're hearing a lot more about uh, with with vehicles like that as, as an alternative? Well, in fact, not only is it time to look at it, we already have looked at it. And in fact, uh, not only have they introduced it by legislation, so that option exists there. Um, but the, the all of the pension experts, don't take my word for it, you can look it up, have said that on balance, they are not as effective in encouraging people to actually save for their own retirement because they are voluntary. And uh, years of research on behavioral finance have indicated that when it's voluntary, people don't act in their own best interest in this kind of situation. For example, one voluntary measure we have already are the RRSPs. You actually get a deduction when you make a contribution. It uh, grows tax-free. When you take it out, you can pay taxes at a lower rate. Even with that product being on the books for the last, what, 20 years almost, we have only 5% uptake of the available savings room. It tells you that when it's voluntary, people just don't do it, even if it would be a good idea for them. All right. Well, Susan, uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to speak about this again in the future. But for now, we uh, certainly appreciate you making some time for us and, and all the best to you. Happy to go at it anytime. <laughs> okay, Thanks, right. Susan. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Take Thank care. Thank you.
Bye-bye. That's Susan Ng, Executive Vice President of the Canadian Association of Retired People. Yeah, I think we did kind of go at it a little bit there. <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, disagreement is all right. And so their group is very insistent. Look, people aren't saving enough for retirement, which would be hard to argue. I think we all agree that, yeah, people aren't saving enough. The, the question is then, well, how best to address that? Uh, do we just simply say, look, you know, CPP will put more eggs in that basket, raise that, increase that. People will pay more into it, get more coming out. Or do we find other ways of encouraging people to save? We've got RSPs, we've got TFSAs, um, maybe other voluntary sort of pooled retirement plans. It's all that stuff's out there. I mean, you know, she said, you know, we're not all financial geniuses, which is true. But, I mean, we know where to go to find people with that expertise. There are financial planners out there, et cetera, who can, can help people navigate all of this. So, so it's there, but if people aren't taking advantage, who does that fall on? All right, we've got to take a pause right here. We'll be right back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770.